All right, I am excited to start a new study this morning through the book of Daniel. You can go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. If you're not familiar, Daniel is in the Old Testament about two-thirds the way through the Bible, situated in the prophets. It is uh, listed as the last of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. you got Lamentations in there as well. It's right before the minor prophets, which start with Hosea, which is interesting because Daniel is not really a prophet in the same sense that Jeremiah or Ezekiel was a prophet sent to speak to God's people on God's behalf. Uh, Daniel was a man in exile who was sent to serve God under a pagan king. There is prophecy in Daniel, but it's different than other prophetic books. There is also quite a bit of historical narrative in Daniel, though it is different than many of the books of historical narrative in the Old Testament. Uh, One way that it's different is that it contains quite a bit of apocalyptic literature. Uh, I think they're going to check for some extra chairs over across the the way. Um, It's different from other historical narrative because it contains a lot of apocalyptic literature like Revelation in the New Testament. So it's often thought to be like the Revelation of the Old Testament. It contains lots of visions of the future that are, um, you know, revealed in symbols that are helping us understand the future of world history and that sort of thing. So should be a fun ride. We're kind of starting slow with the historical narrative in the beginning. So follow as I read from Daniel chapter 1. I will read the entire chapter. And as I do, remember this is indeed the Word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, 
and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. All right, right off the bat, we need to clear uh, something up so that it doesn't trip you up if you come across it somewhere else. Uh, In verse 1, it says that it was the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. But if you look in Jeremiah 25.1 and 46.2, it says it took place in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. It's actually not a problem. Uh, All that was likely going on there is Jeremiah was using the Judaic dating system, which had a different calendar, and Daniel was using the Babylonian dating system, which had a different uh, dates for their calendar and different months and all that. Either way, you arrive at May or June of 605 B.C., which is when Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. This was the first of three uh, waves of bringing God's people from the Promised Land into slavery or exile in Babylon, 605, 597, and 586 B.C., the second and third of which were much more brutal. So the context of the book is that God's people are being removed from the promised land. God is removing one of the great covenant blessings that he had given to his people hundreds of years prior. This is a period of deep darkness for the people of God. So against this backdrop of darkness, which is really the backdrop of the book, I want you to see four main things from chapter 1. Number 1, God's faithfulness amidst the darkness Number two, God's sovereignty over the darkness. Number three, the enemy tactics of the forces of darkness. And number four, standing in faith against the darkness. So first, in verse one and following, though it might not be the first thing that you think about when you look at this part of the passage, we do see God's faithfulness amidst the darkness. But actually, when we look at this and we see that God is you know, that God's people are being driven out of the promised land, we might be tempted to ask if God has ceased to be faithful. I mean, this is the land that was promised to Abraham long ago, that that promise that was reiterated to his descendants. You know, they waited hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt, and then God sent Moses to rescue them out of Egypt, and finally Joshua takes them in to this long promised land. This land was given as a gift, a covenant gift from God to his people, And in verse 2, we read that God gave it into the hand of the king Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So God's given the land to someone else, which begs the question, has God ceased to be faithful to his covenant promises about the land? 
Uh, no, we actually see God's faithfulness in that he is driving the people from the land, his faithfulness to judge or discipline his people. We're going to return at the end of the chapter to talk about God's faithfulness in different ways, but um, the first way we see God's faithfulness is that he is driving his people out of the land. He told them this would happen. First in Leviticus 26, uh, where you know the people are receiving God's law, before they go into the promised land, Leviticus 26 has, um, they're told about blessings for their obedience if they were to follow God in covenant relationship. They're told about curses for disobedience. And one of the curses that is mentioned there in Leviticus 26, 31 to 33, if you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas of, of worship. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations from the land and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land will be a desolation and your cities a waste. Deuteronomy 28 is a similar passage where God promises that if his people will not obey him, uh, they will be brought back into slavery. Yet another passage which is more specific to this about being uh, brought into slavery in Babylon is in Isaiah 39. So King Hezekiah had let the son of the Babylonian king into his storehouses to show him all of the treasure of God's people in the storehouses of God. And because he did that, God sent Isaiah to him to tell him there's going to come a day uh, when all that the fathers have stored up will be taken from here to Babylon. Not only that, but the sons of Israel will be taken as well. So that's, you can see that in Isaiah 39. The point is, God is faithful. Now, we may not tend to think about God's faithfulness this way, but that's what is going on here. God is being true to his word. Might this sober us to the warnings of Scripture? I mean, wherever there is a warning to us about uh, living in disobedience to God, God will be faithful to the things that he warns. God will not be mocked. Sin has consequences. He disciplines us because he loves us. And uh, sometimes that discipline is severe. This, of course, is sobering, but is also heartening. God will always remain faithful to his word. And while this period was a period where God was being faithful in a negative sense and disciplining his people, even here, we can remember that God will always, too, be faithful in that positive sense of redemption and grace and mercy, which, again, we'll return to because it's in this passage, and we'll see it at the end. Next, I want us to see God's sovereignty over the darkness. God is in absolute control. That's what we mean by sovereignty. God is in absolute control even over the downfall of his people. So verse 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But verse 2 tells us that it was actually the Lord who gave the king of Judah into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, while this is kind of hard to work through and it's a little bit sobering and wait, why? Remember, it's because he promised that that would happen if they would disobey and all that sort of thing. But it's also very hopeful in the long term because Nebuchadnezzar does not have absolute power. He is not in control. He is only allowed to rule and conquer for as long as God sees fit. And God is taking this somewhere. 
So he has a purpose in the discipline of his people, but he also will redeem and restore once his discipline is complete. So even in the darkest times of our lives, we can remember that God is working all things toward the ultimate good of his people, toward his ultimate purpose of redemption for his people. This is something we're going to need to remember as the church in our country, as the times continue to change in our country, as Christianity is more and more marginalized, um, as Christians are more and more persecuted. I think we're seeing that to some degree, but I think it's only a matter of time before it gets worse. God is sovereign over the darkness. The forces of darkness do not have free reign. They may be permitted to have influence for a time, uh, but they are permitted to operate within the limits that God sets for them. And God is taking this somewhere. We know that somewhere includes the ultimate blessing for his people, uh, for his glory and for our good. So this is also important for people to remember who are in the middle of trials not necessarily as a consequence of your sin, but maybe because of someone else's sin or maybe just because God has appointed a specific trial for you. God is sovereign over the darkness. He will apply just the right amount of heat to mold you and shape you into Christ's likeness and image. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He said, "'Growth in grace and usefulness in God's service.'" does not begin in the world of our dreams, but in the context of life's harsh historical realities. Growth in grace and usefulness in God's service does not begin in the world of our dreams, but in the context of life's harsh historical realities. And I would add, as God governs those harsh historical realities toward his perfect ends. This is important for those to remember who are in uh, trial because of your sin or who will end up in trial because of your sin. You know, and back in Leviticus 26 where God promised those curses for disobedience, uh, and he, at the end of the chapter, he says, verse 40, if they confess their iniquity against me, if they humble their hearts and make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant and I will remember the land. Simply put, if his people would turn back from their disobedience and turn back to him, if they would repent, the covenant relationship with God would be restored, including the covenant blessings of the relationship like the land. So in our sin, we are subject to God's discipline. He only disciplines those that he loves. And because he loves us so much, sometimes he will discipline us severely. But repentance from our sin leads to restoration in our relationship with him. Your sin may lead you to a place where you feel completely out of control, but God is still in control at that place. All is not lost. So repent. Turn back to God again and again. He is faithful to his promises of grace and mercy. Jesus died for every one of our sins so that we could be free from them And God is sovereign over the darkness, working even those times, even the darkest parts of our soul for our healing and for our restoration, for his glory. I know that for me, some of the times that I have been most afraid to confess my sin are times that God has worked the greatest amount of healing in my life. Um, I, I trust it would be the same for you. Next, I want us to see the enemy tactics of the forces of darkness. They are 
isolation, indoctrination, intoxication or subordination, and identification. Uh, we see the tactic of isolation in that Nebuchadnezzar removes these young men from their godly surroundings in their homeland. He has a plan for them, a plan to transform them into Babylonians. Uh, some commentators go into the fact that he knows, even just from history, that if he doesn't infiltrate their culture, you know, Israel's done this before. They, they've gone out of uh, their safe surroundings and into exile before, but there was a culture that was left intact. And so he's trying to get at them from the inside and transform them from the inside into Babylonians. The Israelites were still Israelites and not Egyptians. And uh, he's trying to, to change them from the inside. But the first thing he has to do is remove them from their context of worship and service to God. So uh, that's isolation. Next, in verses 4 and 5, we see the tactic of indoctrination. They were to be taught, not from the Hebrew Scriptures anymore, but they were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were to be immersed in them. They were to be educated for three years. So um, these young men were likely around 16 or 17 years old. So think about getting a college degree in Chaldean studies. But really, it's kind of like studying abroad. You know, people go to study abroad so that they really get immersed in it, so that they really can, can know it. But that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, they're going to major in Chaldean studies, immersed in the Chaldean culture, and um, so that they can really get it. The next tactic is intoxication or association slash subordination. This has to do with the food and the wine. Now, this is the point at which Daniel was resolved to resist so as not to defile himself. And the text goes into a, a big deal about that. Some people say he resisted because it wasn't according to the food laws in Israel. Well, I don't really think that's the case because if that was the case, well, the vegetables that he eats are still going to be unclean because, you know, they weren't kosher. I mean, they were Babylonian. So I don't really think that's his issue. But uh, people say that there could be a couple things going on here. One, the king was feeding him from his table. So these are all the finest five-star delicacies of Babylon. Maybe he's in trying to intoxicate them, not necessarily in the sense of getting them drunk. I mean, I don't think he would care about that, but just in the sense of offering them uh, alternate pleasures to feast on that would dull their affections for God, right? I mean, that's, that's one way to look at this. But also, it is thought that receiving the king's food would have been a sign of association and even subordination to the king. Like Daniel and his friends would be saying, we are glad to serve you, O king. So that is the point at which he resists because that's the essence of what he's not going to do. I'm not here to serve you. I mean, a part of my service to God is going to include service to you, but let's make it clear on the front end this is not about me coming to serve you. I'm serving Yahweh. Um, so either he resists so as not to dull his affections for God or not to compromise his allegiance to God. Uh, God has sent them there, but his service will be to God and God alone. Uh, the last tactic of the enemy is that of identification. So... Um, if you look in the chapter, it mentions the names, it mentions the Hebrew names, and you'll notice Daniel and Misael, the ending is El, like Elohim, which is a name for God, and Hananiah and Azariah, Yah, like Yahweh. So these names are connected to the name of God. 
And then the names that they're given are connected to Babylonian deities. Now, I don't know those deities, but that's what, you know, people that study these things say, and that these names are derived. I remember one of them was Nebo, um, like Abednego, Nego, Nebo, or something like that. But um, anyway, that's what's going on here in the change of the name is to say, you know what, you've identified with this Yahweh, but we're going to change that, and you're going to identify with the gods of Babylon. All right. So, uh, if these are the tactics of the enemy forces of darkness, and uh, this was one example of that in history, how else do we see that playing out in our day? Anybody have any thoughts? So, if the enemy uses isolation, indoctrination, uh, Intoxication, or support, I'm trying to get your allegiance, or uh, identification as the tactics of trying to make disciples. How do we see that going on in our day? Anybody else? I think the intoxication is pretty uh, it's pretty easy to see too. There's just there's so much competing for our attention and so so many pleasures that are easily consumable um, mm-hmm. that would dull our affection for um, for the Lord. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Christ calls you to, to suffer and to die and lay down your life and take up your cross and it's like but there's Netflix. Why, right. why do I want to take up my cross when there's, yeah. there's Netflix? Like, why, you know, so there's just, there's so much available um, and in our culture is readily available to satisfy desires and urges mm-hmm. and longings and things that we have that we're not driven to the Lord to meet mm-hmm. all our needs. We have the King's food readily available. We sure do. The five-star delicacies of... Babylon. Right. Yeah. It's true. I was thinking about media. I mean, music, movies, television. um, You know, a lot of that is intended to isolate. I mean, just in the sense of isolate from uh, godly surroundings and put you in an alternate world, even if just for a moment. Now it's longer moments as we, you know, binge on Netflix and watch whole seasons and things like that. Um, Again, intoxicate with the pleasures that are there. Uh, all, you know, indoctrinate. There's always a message. I mean, they've always got something they're trying to get you to believe and uh, identify with, you know, really then at the end kind of really get your heart to identify with some of these um, alternate ways of viewing the world. One of the most powerful ways into our hearts and minds is through our affections. And uh, I think the entertainment industry understands that, marketing as well, right? I mean, just get them, if we can just get them there where they feel And then maybe we can get a hold of their minds and uh, that sort of thing. So what? Don't watch movies or music or... No, that's not what I'm saying. But um, obviously there are things we shouldn't watch. And obviously I think we could have a conversation about the problems of binging on Netflix. But, um, you know, I think for all of us, just looking at Daniel, asking these things of are we consuming 
the things of our culture, because he was in the culture. He was in Chaldean studies. I mean, immersed in it. But are we consuming them in a posture of submission to God? With, is, it, is a faith-filled commitment uh, what is driving, and our allegiance to him, what is driving our uh, participation in our culture? Is our watching and listening and outworking of our relationship with him? You know, these aren't answers. I can't answer this for everyone else, but um, I think these are areas where God will convict us and, and bring wisdom. All right, what else? What do you mean? I think it's great. The people of North Korea. Yeah. I think about them all the time. It's a modern day um, uh, replayment of what, if that's the right word, replaying of what happened with Hitler in mm-hmm. World War II. I mean, a, a country arrested mm-hmm. by the consuming thoughts of their leader. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are plenty of truly fine people in North Korea, but under that regime, Mm-hmm. totalitarian way of thinking. You're talking about complete arrestment of your attentions and you know, all this scripture you're saying. That's a great example mm-hmm. of a country driven, the, the message is driven and controlled by the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, talk about isolation. Like, we are not going to let you have any other thoughts come in here except the ones that we give you, and we're going to indoctrinate you. I mean, that is a, um, I don't know... If there's an intoxication, I think people probably hate living there. But there is certainly that subordination allegiance thing going on or else. And we're going to get you to identify with this above all else. And that does, as Will said, work its way out, in, even in our culture, in lesser ways, um, with our allegiances clouding our judgment on, on other issues. Right yes, absolutely. absolutely. Here's another one, and I... I hesitate to say it because I don't want it to be misunderstood, but I think it's important to understand what we're up against. Um, so I mentioned the government schools, and I don't mean, I'm not thinking about the local expression of those schools like here. I'm thinking about the system that puts all of that and that establishes the curriculum and things like that. Um, you know, the intention, if you go back and study the heart of that, is to isolate even Christian kids from God's word and from their godly surroundings, which they have now done, indoctrinate them into alternate ways of viewing the world, whether about God or just about creation or different things like that, you know, intoxicate them with alternate pleasures, go after their allegiance, and ultimately we want them to identify with these alternate ways of viewing the world. Again, people bristle at hearing that, but I think it's important for us to know what we're up against. I mean, This is like Chaldean studies, right? And so there is a way in which God, sovereign over the darkness, faithfully gives wisdom and all learning to his people. But it was from a posture of conviction, rooted faith towards God, understanding what we're up against. And so that would be my uh, application in that regard, is just um, we have to approach education, particularly, I think, in the government schools that way standing firm in the faith, submission to God, standing against uh, the darkness, and uh, in prayer and dependence on God that our children might grow in that true wisdom and learning. All right. Uh, I, just, 
I got to say, I completely disagree with you on that. Okay. Certainly respect well, your opinion, but I, I, explain I that. I guess I'm saying if you're suggesting that the intent behind establishing education by the government is mm-hmm. to somehow dethrone God, essentially, what mm-hmm. you're saying in the hearts of people, couldn't secular people have an intent to where they want to establish an educated populace? Mm-hmm. And that be the driver? And maybe in effect, in some cases, that happens when certain people get involved and politicize things one way or the other. I guess I just disagree with your conclusion, but I just wanted, I didn't want, want that to be left unsaid either. Sure. So, anyway, we well, that. that's no, and that's good. I mean, I would just... I would just say, I mean, we could go on about that, and we did before. I didn't want it to be the main thing. But, um, you know, if you look at when the school systems became government-run, when this is new. This is all within the last 100 years. They used to be community-based schools. I mean, we don't have community-based schools anymore. We have government-instituted school structures and systems and curriculums and things like that. That's a new thing, and the people that were fighting for that were hard leftist atheist liberals. And so just to know where how we got where we got, it's important. Guys like Dewey and and things like that who were, you know, at best agnostic but had an agenda, it's at least influenced where we are. Now, I'm not discrediting the fact that there are people of all um, beliefs that want to do good for their I, I look at the Muslim population and I go, I think they're influenced by the forces of darkness and the things they believe. And yet, I think we have more in common with Muslim families than with a lot of people because they want a lot of the same things, right? They want their kids to be well taken care of. They want, you know, to provide a good education. I'm not saying that everyone in there is evil. I'm saying that I think at the root of this whole system is some of this philosophy and that we just need to stand against it. Now, that doesn't mean that everything we do in the school we have to stand against. I'm just, if we're not praying in dependence and submission to God in the education of our children, then we've missed it. And um, I think you miscalculate what we're up against. But we could continue that another time. Uh, next, in verses 8 to 16, we see Daniel and the other believers standing in faith against the darkness. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Uh, He was a man of conviction, and he was acting on his convictions. That could have been very costly. The chief eunuch that is in charge of this understands this. Verse 10, he says, Would you endanger my head? Nonetheless, Daniel follows his convictions, looking to the Lord and not to men. So Daniel's faith is going to be on display throughout the book, right? I mean, most of us are familiar with Daniel in the lion's den, Um, But here, in a smaller situation, Daniel's faith is being strengthened for what's ahead. So, too, will God give each of us convictions, some of them small, some of them insignificant. But don't be distracted by the situation or the volume of, of what it is. The issue is, are we going to serve God? So maybe it's about, you know, I've got that person in my life that I've really just been convicted about, and I really think I need to have that conversation with them. I think it would be a loving thing to do to bring this thing to light and try to work through it with them. Uh, maybe it's there's a trend at work socially or just systemically that we know we just can't get behind and can't be a part of. But whatever it is, however small, um, you know, where God is convicting us, might we stand in faith to him Uh, with our convictions. And finally, in verses 17 to 21, 
we return to the theme of God's faithfulness amidst the darkness. And this time, instead of seeing God's faithfulness in terms of judgment, we see God's faithfulness in provision, blessing, restoration, and redemption. So in terms of provision and blessing, uh, God's people trusted him, and God gave them all learning and skill and wisdom and literature. And Daniel was given all understanding in dreams and visions, which are going to be very important even in the next chapter. So at the end of time... These four men stood before the king at the end of the time allotted, the three years, um, and they were head and shoulders above the rest. Not because they were proud. In fact, they were humble. They were respectful. They were submissive. But God was with them, and they trusted him. So, too, we must trust God in whatever situation he puts us in, whether uh, that puts us in Chaldean studies or... Uh, whether he puts a, whatever situation he puts us in where the forces of darkness are evident, he will provide above and beyond all that we need. In terms of restoration and redemption, in uh, verse 21, it says that Daniel was in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. Does anybody know what the significance of that mention is? King Cyrus... Persian Empire taken over. Um, when, do you know when that happened? No, it was later. The point is that a lot of time has gone by. This is like kind of thrown in there. 70 years. I mean, this is after exile. King Cyrus, if you read in Ezra, the beginning of chapter 1, you will see that King Cyrus is the king of the Persian army. The Persians conquered the Babylonians, and King Cyrus... Uh, led the people back into the promised land. So God raised up Cyrus to defeat Nebuchadnezzar and lead his people out of exile back home. Which uh, brings us back to the point that God is faithful. Sometimes that's a severe truth in terms of discipline, but the discipline of his people is not the forsaking of his people He works all things, even those hardest things, toward the ultimate good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign over the darkness. Nebuchadnezzar was not in control. God was. God gave the king Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. As we talk about this more in the coming weeks, uh, we're going to see that the kingdoms of the earth rise and fall, but God's kingdom will never fade. That is one of the Uh, primary promises and prophecies in the book of Daniel is about God's kingdom and the fact that it will never fade. The enemy forces will try their best, but we know ultimately how this ends. Not only because we have the promises and prophecies of Daniel, but we know the one to whom they pointed, to God's king of God's kingdom, Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of the world rise and fall But as we've talked about in here many times, uh, Jesus conquered the enemy forces of darkness through his fall and rise, through his death and resurrection. So, um, you know, Daniel was up against Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the Babylonian forces. Uh, We are up against the even greater forces of Satan, sin, and death. All to say, uh, Jesus conquered Satan, sin, and death in his death and resurrection. 
So if we haven't trusted him, now is the time to trust him like Daniel trusted God then. And for all of us who have fallen short of God's standard in whatever way, we return to him again and again because he's faithful to his covenant promises to restore the relationship with us and even restore the blessings of covenant with us. We confess our sins to God. He is faithful to forgive us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it is timeless and true. Uh, Thank you that it transcends culture and applies to every culture under the sun, every time and every season. Lord, uh, we know that you are faithful. That is a sobering truth, but we thank you that you're faithful even in discipline. Um, Lord, that you will not let us continue to run after our sin, but you will faithfully come and get us and discipline us to bring us back to you. Thank you uh, that you are sovereign, Lord, that all of these things uh, that threaten us and uh, that we're up against, we know that you are sovereign over and you're working all things toward your perfect ends. Lord, Thank you that the enemy forces don't stand a chance. We know, Lord Jesus, that you have conquered the greatest of them, uh, Satan, sin, and death, and your death and resurrection. And, Father, we know that you are indeed faithful um, to extend grace and mercy to those who will turn to you and ask for it. So I do pray, if there are those in here that don't know you, that uh, you would draw them to yourself. And for those, uh, all of us, who continue to fall short, Lord, would you encourage us again and again to come back and bask in the glories of your grace and mercy in Christ. Thank you for our time together, and I do pray you would establish us in your paths in Christ's name.